0: Let's pray. Oh, God, of mercy. You are our love. Lord, we come to you to surrender to your design today. And, Lord, we pray that you would multiply these hallelujahs. Lord, we pray that you would do a deepening work of your grace through your word in the lives of these children. God, John says that I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And so, God, we pray for these young ones. That their joy would be full as they hear and study and learn about you. And Jesus said, uh, we pray for us as well. We are your children in this place. And we pray that you would experience joy from our pursuit of you in truth. And that, God, you would allow us to know more of your design that we would surrender to. That, God, we would multiply. Hallelujah to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we had church here already today. I, I, when I heard that song, I'm trying to think, okay, now what genre of music is that? Is that, you know, it's a rhythm and blues uh, from Appalachia or from New Orleans. I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to capture whatever it is. It was a beautiful sound. And uh, we're grateful for those that give their, their gifts to the body to allow us to worship him. <clears throat> you know, we struggle. We struggle loving well. Our own feelings, our desires, our wounds often take precedent over us in loving others well. So how do you find strength to love in hard places? How do you hope when all your hope seems crushed? And how do you move forward in faith when the world and everything seems to go against you? These are just some of the things that we'll be considering in the book of Ruth. And over the course of the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the radical love stories from the book of Ruth. Uh, Now, Ruth is an unusual, uh, very personal, intimate book uh, in the Bible. It's nestled between uh, two major big political kingdom global books of Judges and then Samuel. Uh, And here's this little intimate book. uh, It's been called The Interlude of Love. And it's about a mother, and it's about a daughter-in-law relationship and their struggles and their determination for survival in the midst of life's harsh realities, their yearnings and their pursuit of true love and their relationship to the God who comes to the aid of his people. It's about two very strong women, an Israelite woman and a Moabite woman, whose God joined them together to become the family that would ultimately bear the Messiah. It is a book book that reveals to us a God who, while appearing absent and distant in our personal distress, in our broken dreams, is very close to his people and their yearning. So let's consider this opening chapter of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mylon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more. Also, if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a season of hope. It was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a, a, a winter of despair. Those are some of the opening words in, in Charles Dickens' uh, uh, The Tale of Two Cities. Thank you very much. Second. But as we opened up the book of Ruth, what we find is not the first half of hope and of you know, of a spring, but what we have is winter. We have despair. Uh, We have the worst of times. And so as the book of Ruth opens up, uh, we find these words, in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, This was the period of the judges, and while judges contained some charismatic leaders like Deborah and Gideon and Samson, it was more about a generation who had lost knowledge of and their history of God and of his, of his work among them. The day when the judges ruled was time was a time characterized by a frequent apostasy leaving God, turning away from him. It was a period of moral, of spiritual decline. Uh, it was a period of great foreign oppression. Uh, it was dark and bloody days. Uh, and near the beginning of the Book of Judges, we find these telling words. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what they had done. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they served the Baals and forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. And they followed and worshipped other gods. The end of Judges ends with, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. And so the book of Ruth is within this period of time. It was a very dark Uh, despairing era, it was the worst of times. But it was not only a dark national time, it was also a dark economic time. It says in those days, uh, there was a famine in the land. Uh, In an agricultural society, it was a period characterized by the threat of physical starvation. And so Elimelech uprooted his family and moved uh, to a hostile culture. and with the hope that he could find possible provision. And it shows us the desperation of this uh, situation. But it was more uh, than a dark national time and more than a dark, desperate economic time. It was also a very distressing family time. Within 10 years after they moved, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, and then her only two sons die. And we have a situation of tragedy piled upon tragedy Naomi has left without was left without her two sons her husband in a foreign land uh, without protection without support she is in a very desperate situation um, sometimes we say these things when we're faced with various hazard and and troubles we we uh, we we might say that we've had a car accident but then we say but Even though my car was totaled, nobody was hurt. But then sometimes, let's say your car was totaled and you were hurt, but you could say, well, at least you didn't die. Uh, Or you could say, uh, you know, your kid comes home and he brings a, a, a bad report card, and you could say, well, at least he's not on drugs. And then you say, you find out that your son's dealing drugs, and then you say, well, at least he's not a drug dealer. And then you say, well, uh, well, you find out he's a drug dealer. You say, well, at least he's not dead. And you can see that we keep having excuses of, of, well, at least it's not this bad. At least it's not this bad. When you get to Ruth and you open up this chapter, it's as bad as it can get. It is really horrible. Uh, it's just piled upon tragedy. You can't get any worse. And so Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, and she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And so these uh, opening verses paint for us a picture of great loss, uh, loss of family, loss of support, loss of protection, really a loss of dignity. Ruth is about losses. It's about how we address our losses. But Ruth is also about finding love that is greater than our losses. And so we find some lessons here. We find the lessons of how to find a love that's stronger than our great, greatest losses. And we look at uh, some people uh, in this passage that kind of shows us different responses in the process of dealing with losses that can ha- be helpful lessons for us. So Elimelech, the, the husband, the father, lost, challenged, I believe, his faith in God. Uh, there's a famine in the land. And so he hears that there's a possibility of of greater productivity in Moab. And so he moves his wife and his children, his his two sons, to Moab. He felt compelled. Now, Moab was this unfriendly nation to the southeast of Israel whose people originated out of uh, the relationship of Lot, who was a cousin to Abraham and Lot's daughters. It was an incestuous uh, relationship, and this nation, Moab, had developed out of that. And this nation actually became very hostile to Israel. And we find in the book of Judges that there was an occasion where they oppressed and uh, destroyed many of the towns in Israel for a period of 18 years. There's archaeological digs that shows the massacre of entire Israelite towns by the Moabites. The Moabites also worshipped a god by the name of Chemosh, a god whom uh, required child sacrifice. And so this is the place where Elimelech takes Naomi and his two sons. You can see how desperate uh, that situation was. Why did he feel like he couldn't stay in Judah, in Bethlehem, and seek? To uh, be with God's people. We don't know that. In fact, there's no comment in this passage concerning Him. One of the things I find encouraging is that no matter how messed up we might be, no matter how bad our choices might be, God is still in control. And God will still even use our faithless choices. Uh, to build his kingdom. He will ultimately have his glorious salvation. And we see that even here. But Moab, actually, there's some irony in this passage. Moab, Mo means who in Hebrew. Ab means father. And someone says Moab is actually a The word for, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Uh, Bethlehem means house of bread. And of course, there wasn't any bread in Bethlehem. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. Well, now Elimelech is dead. And uh, Naomi's name means pleasant. And that is the last last description of her in this passage. Malon and Chilion, the sons, were Canaanite names, and they actually meant weak and frail. So you just see one thing piled up against another. They go to the land of who's my daddy? You know, my God the king is dead, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, frail and weak are now dead. And now we have Naomi, who was pleasant. Well, she's now bitter. It's it's almost uh, like, it's a feeling like almost the circumstances feel like maybe God's mocking uh, Naomi in some sense. Uh, When God does not meet our expectations, it opens the door not just to despair, but also to cynicism, to shutting down our hearts to God. This is what Paul Miller says, and by the way, Paul Miller has written a book called um, Loving Well uh, in a World of Brokenness. And I recommend that book highly to you. It's a really excellent uh, piece of of theology and encouragement on the book of Ruth. But he says that Naomi's hopes in God, uh, in this context, you can see how her griefs have intensified. But in this crucible of suffering, we see a stronger love emerge. And what we see is that Naomi... Even in spite of all this, she still has her eyes and her face fixed upon this God. And so Naomi's loss drives her to this God of love. And she arose with her daughters in law. You know, she probably was, you know, she, she was in the field and she had heard that there was bread in, in, or food back in Judah. So she has her ears. She's looking out for where God is blessing. She's in a place of great desperation. You know, some would say that Naomi had a dream. You know, she a simple dream. wanted a husband, a children, grandchildren. But in this opening section, you can see just all of her dreams have been dashed. They've been destroyed. You can almost hear the song, I Dreamed a Dream, you know, in time gone by. Uh when hope was high and life worth living. But it talks about the tigers. They come at night with their voices soft as thunder, and they tear your hopes apart, and they turn your dreams to shame. But there are dreams that cannot be, and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. That is so much of the emotional framework where Naomi is living. How do you sustain uh, yourself in that kind of suffering? Death would actually be a relief, would it not? You don't really care if you die. All of the persons around you that you've loved are dead. You might think about killing yourself, but it's in this place Of suffering, this crucible where we see a love emerge. You know, suffering is often the gymnasium of God's killing our egos and our dreams because He's got a vision for building something more beautiful than we could ever imagine. What's wonderful about this is that Naomi has not given up on her God. She knows God's name. She mentions it in these different passages of the God Almighty, Yahweh, the personal name of God. She knows the name of her God. She knows all the promises and what God had, had, had established historically. And she sees this glimmer of hope, and she is still holding on. And she's still looking forward, even though she's been crushed. And so she's walking with her two daughters-in-law back to Judah, And as she's walking, she comes to realize that she has to release her daughters. She cannot allow her daughters to have the same fate as she has. And so she turns to her daughters, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And this reveals to us where her anchor of strength was. When she says, may the Lord... Deal kindly with you. She is raising this powerful word uh, that is a description of God. It's hesed. It is this love, this steadfast love of God. It is a love of commitment, a love of sacrifice. It is a one-way love. A love without an exit strategy is the love that binds a person to the object of the love. No matter how wicked or evil that person is, it is a binding love. It's a stubborn love. It is not a moody, touchy, emotional love. This is the love that we have for agape, of the Christian faith, that Jesus loved us to the depths as sinners. It's really different from Usher's song, where he talks about, you make me want to leave the one I'm with, start a new relationship with you. This is what I do. I tried to fight, but the feeling's just too strong. You make me want to leave the one I'm with. I mean, that's so much of the nature of love in our society. It's love based upon feeling. And the next attractive person comes along, and you're ready to leave the one you're with. But see, the God of the scriptures, the God of hesed, of commitment, of loyalty, of steadfast love, is the love that she has bound herself to. She's not negotiating with Ruth or with uh, Orpah. She is really commanding them to go back. And what we're seeing is this Hesed love, this love in action. And she gives Ruth and Orpah freedom uh, to remarry, to have children, to have a family. Uh, She's already in her own brokenness and poverty, but she gives away her hope and her future by releasing her daughter-in-laws from any sense of obligation. Even though daughters-in-law were to take care of their mothers, she is releasing them. She says, go back. You still have the possibility of a life. My life is done. And she kisses them. And there's this wailing and there's this grief. But they're not budging. (laughs) So... Said so Naomi has to go another mile, and then she brings up this whole thing. Well, look, there is no hope for you. Even if I remarried and had sons tonight, would you wait around for them? It's ridiculous. There is no prospects. I can't have any children. She's bringing up the whole levirate uh, marriage law in in, the, in uh, Israel, where if uh, the bro- the mother, or the husband of a wife died, the brother was supposed to marry uh, that that widow to raise the children and to carry on the name of the brother. There's a big, huge value on carrying on the name in in the Hebrew culture. But she said, even if this happened, would you stick around? It's impossible. It's futile. Leave. Go home. And she says, return, return, return. Naomi makes it clear where the strength of her love resides and why she's in the state that she's in. She says Yahweh's own hand is the source of my situation. Libra Groves, a Hebrew instructor at Westminster, said, there is a deep, ancient, forever-binding, covenantal anguish in her complaint. Yahweh is her God, and yet he is against her. He has not only allowed her, uh, not only allowed, but orchestrated the mini-holocaust of which she is the sole survivor, Left destitute and without hope. That hurts. You might expect to be treated badly by some stranger, but not by your dad. And she's expressing a very deep grief. And she's expressing that God is at the root of what's happened to my life. I recently heard a pastor uh, speak some words. He tried to speak words of comfort to a group of people whose uh, family had lost a child Uh, in a very, very, very uh, horrible situation, of death. And this pastor said, As we gather tonight, I want everybody to take out of their hearts some of the foolishness you would hear from people about how God needed another child in heaven. What kind of loving God selfishly takes a child from his mother? The death of this baby is one of the tragedies that occur in life. Bad things do happen to innocent people. So don't blame God. Don't blame God. But who is ultimately responsible for whether we live or die? Well, the scriptures tell us that God has numbered our days. Was God's hand too short to save in these tragedies? Did he not have the power to save this child or to save another person? Was the creator of the universe too weak? The scriptures tell us that this God knows all things, is in control of all things. We call this providence, that he governs all things by his holy and wise will. God is not the author of sin. He is not the author of evil, but he allows even evil to accomplish his good purposes. God hates what he does permits to prove what he loves. And so when you think of Jesus on the cross, you say the Romans put him on the cross, right? And the Jewish leaders were part of the mob that put Jesus on the cross. But we find in Acts chapter 2 that Peter says it was God who ordained this, even this, so that it would accomplish a great salvation. And so God is at the root of all things that happen. Uh, and so Naomi claims that this is the God who has caused her own grief. She did not blame it on the devil. She did not blame it on her husband for leaving Bethlehem. She didn't blame it on her sons for choosing Moabite wives. She attributed her plight immediately to God. And it is important for us to see that that is really the strength of her faith. She believes that this God is in charge. So there's no hint Uh, But we also find that one of the strengths that we see in Naomi is how she practices her faith, and it's through lament. You can see that she is expressing her grief. It comes out, and you know that she's been expressing her grief to God. Uh, One of our worshipers, Dr. Rebecca Eklund, who's a professor at uh, Loyola University, she has recently written a book called, uh, it's been published, called Jesus Wept. It's a great book. I recommend that to you. Uh, but she says, My working definition of lament in the New Testament derives from the Old Testament pattern. Lament is a persistent cry for salvation to the God who promises to save in a situation of suffering or sin. in the confident hope that this God hears and responds to cries and acts now and in the future to make whole. That's just a great uh, expression of a true lament, a true crying out to God in the midst of holding on to God. Uh, we heard from Psalm 13 is just one example. Uh, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And what we see in the scriptures and in the Bible is that two-thirds of the Psalms are laments, the cries out of the darkness, out of the pits of life. You know, God, he wants your frank, earnest, un- unhindered, no holds bar emotions and feelings, whether it's giddy thanksgiving for something that he's blessed you with, pomp, you know, huge booming praise, or sobbing, grieving, angry laments. God, he's not he's not you know amused by false reservations and stoicism. You know, in God's economy, real men do cry. Uh, and so in Psalm 62, 8 says Trust trusted him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is a refuge. What does it mean to pour out? It means to gush out. It means to, to spill. It's just an overflowing. You see, God can handle your anger. Lament before God. Bring your griefs. Bring your losses. Bring your. These are the highest acts of faith that you can bring God. Because if you don't bring your anger to God, it finds its way in other destructive things. Paul Miller said, a broken heart that doesn't lament can breed unbelief. And we find that, that our grief, if it doesn't go directly to God, finds its way to go inward or outward in destructive ways. Inward, uh, it, it goes into bitterness. It goes into a cynicism and uh, bitterness is a wound that's nursed. And you know, Naomi, it's been questioned, she, she's on the slippery slope between faithful lamenting and a bitterness. How can you tell when you move into a state of faithful lament and bitterness? Where, how do you assess that? Well, uh, there's a guy named Trumper Longman, a professor at Westminster, who said bitterness, openly expressed to God, plus obedience, is a raw, pure. Form of faith, okay? Lament, bitterness openly expressed with obedience is a pure form of faith. It's raw, pure form of faith. But he said bitterness openly expressed plus disobedience is rebellion. And so one of the ways you can tell is if you do not take your griefs and your losses directly to God and to pray to God and lay at his feet your anger and your disappointment with what life has treated you, then it will turn into bitterness against God. And so there's a question at the end here whether she's slipping because when she comes into town and they say, Oh, is this Naomi? And she says, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. You know, because the Lord's hand has been against me. But, you know, God takes our stumbling, fumbling faith and He continues to engage. You know, one of the things that we can do for people who are in deep distress is to listen to them, to give them the gift of listening to their woes. Just to listen. Don't give any answers. This is not the time for a theological answers. It is a time just to be with people and to weep with them. Uh, so Naomi's loss is driver to a gracious God. But what is, what is God's response to these losses? Well, God's response is that loss moves him to give Naomi a clinging Ruth. And so we find that when Orpah left, it says, But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Ruth is God's answer to Naomi's lament. Within seconds, Naomi's charge that the Lord's hand was, has gone out against her He gives her Ruth's hands, clinging to her with a fierce grip. And so we find that this is the grip of God's grace and love to her. God responds to Naomi's suffering and loss by giving her Ruth. You know, God often uses human agents to show his love. He weeps with Naomi through Ruth's tears. So what Naomi needs is lifelong physical health. What Naomi needs is companionship, someone who would even die for her. She needs a savior. And in so many ways, Ruth became God's presence and God's companionship and God's physical help to her. Naomi said, no, daughter, save your life. Uh, You need to save your life and you have to lose me. My life is over. But Ruth says, no, my life is over. I will die for you. So in order to give Naomi comfort, companionship, and food, Ruth gives up friends. She gives up her family. She gives up any possibility of a husband and children. In fact, she gives up her whole future. Ruth embraces hopelessness. But in that act is a demonstration of an amazing love because Ruth has found That this God that Naomi has demonstrated before her, that she has heard about, this God who has been the creator of the universe, he's not a local God, this God who hates child sacrifices, this God who has a deliverer of his people out of Egypt, this God who dignifies women and children and, and a nation, This God is going to be her God. She has claimed this God. She is holding on to this God, even though she is from Moab. And so Ruth takes on this God, and she claims this God, and she says, I'm ready to die for you. I am ready to die for your God. He will be my God. God is in the details of life. All of your losses that you're experiencing, you might feel like, man, I don't know where God is. I am experiencing deep relational brokenness. You might be in a very difficult marriage right now, and maybe you're a wife and your husband is not paying emotional attention to you, and you find yourself just very lonely. Maybe you're a husband and your wife is constantly tearing you down and criticizing you, thinking that somehow by nagging and criticizing, she can change you, and you're tired. Uh, I don't know what your situations are. You might be in a very horrible employment situation. All of those losses that you're feeling, those struggles that you're feeling, God is not absent. He is working, even though you might feel like you're in Moab, and you know, who's your daddy? Where is he? God is present, and he is working, and he wants you to come to him with your grief. He has a hope and a future for you. Ruth is a journey of love, and we can learn from Ruth and Naomi, and uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your church that have gathered to look at this passage today. We pray, God, that we would continue to learn how to love well. Lord, we realize that we have no capacity to love Uh, like this commitment, steadfast, stubborn love uh, in hard situations. So we need your grace. Lord, help us to take our disappointments to you. Lord, help us to be a people, uh, a community of listeners that can just gather around the losses. Lord, just coming into the sanctuary, uh, a sister says that a deep friend of hers just died uh, just this week, and she's grieving that loss, and Lord, I don't know all the losses here, but God, would you lift your people up and strengthen them and let them know that they are beloved by you. And God, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.